0: this episode is called humanity is not a kpi hi tracy
1: hey tim how are you
0: i'm good i'm i feel so excited today and i have no reason for feeling that way like uh, a bunch of crazy stuff is happening in the background of my life like nothing tragic or anything just usual but i am so excited to be alive today i just got to say that it's, it's just a good day to be here.
1: That's that's either very Labrador Retriever or very Klingon. One of the two. I can't figure out which yet.
0: It's not Klingon, so I think we know.
1: No, I, I know the quote, though, but yes. Uh, anyhow, hi, folks. Is that a
0: quote? I have no idea. Well, I have no, no, no idea no, what the, you're talking the, about. The,
1: the Klingon, you know, Hek lumir, Gok oh, Javam is today is a good day to die right so you know yeah that's not at all where i was what in the how did you
0: get that from me i've what happened there because you're having a great
1: day so today's a great day to die that's how the klingons (laughs) would say that
0: Uh, oh this is the best intro we've ever had ever
1: Um, Hi, everyone. I, I can't even tell you what episode number we're up to for why it matters. But we are so glad you're here and on this journey with us. Today's episode is really for those who want to understand how data can be shaped towards human dignity. And what we mean by that is that it's really easy to get bogged down in abstractions when it comes to understanding the importance of data in our world. Everyone will say, yes, this is important. Yes, we should collect it. Yes, we need to make decisions based on it. But what we collect directly informs what we accelerate and act upon. And unless what we collect represents our actual humanity in an inclusive manner, What we accelerate will continue to exclude from that. So our guest, Mina Das, walks us through an unbelievably secret set of tactical and very pragmatic connections that will better inform our data collection mechanisms and lead to greater impact and empowerment. I think the most important takeaway from today's discussion is that what moves us towards better outcomes isn't rooted in just performative or feel-good intentions, but requires us to literally return to our roots of connection with each other, first and foremost, and that is where data gets humanized. Otherwise, everything else that gets built on top of our data collection, including artificial intelligence and public policy, is going to only enforce power and privilege rather than democratizing access to it. This is a great conversation and it feels decades ahead of some of the ones that we've been having so far. Hope you enjoy.
0: Mina, we're so excited to have you join us today. I want to hear, and I know everybody that's listening wants to hear, how did you get your start in tech?
2: Well, first of all, thank you so much, Tracy and Tim, for having me here. I know I met Tracy a couple of months ago. I've been following her, and then you came into my radar, and now I'm your fan stalker, like, in a good way, good kind. Um, I would say, how did I get into tech? Okay, so I'm a first-generation BIPOC migrant. I moved here from India about six years ago. And when I say here, I mean states, and from states to Canada, where I am right now. Um, I, when did I finish? It seems like, okay, it seems like I finished my education longer ago. About 15 years ago, I completed my education. I got into tech. Um, I started with, I was into tech for a really long time uh, in different roles. And I started with one uh, job at Oracle back in, in India. And I was starting with that, as I was starting with that job, I also had my own school for um, sexual assault victims and ex-prisoners. We have a lot of people in the country, I realized, and that always made me feel powerful growing up. Like, I have people, and that made me feel so proud about growing up in a country which, wherever you see, you have seen people. And I started this initiative so I could share everything I have been learning about computers and technology to people who didn't feel like there wasn't enough in their life, which I wanted to change. They, they, they were full of potential. And if only I could show them how wonderful they were, and I started to do that. And at some point I realized, well, I am not going to be able to sustain this school because one, my pay in an early tech job doesn't give me enough. And two, I don't understand anything about what fundraising is. I don't think I understood that term. It just felt like you need a lot of corporate sponsorship at some point just to sustain something. Um, that kind of made me realize, okay, I want to learn more and then earn more, bring it back and start back my school. So I moved to States about six years ago. I moved to Florida, I picked a place which has lizards and alligators, everything that I'm scared of. And I picked the perfect place for myself. And um, I started to go to school there, finish my schooling around analytics. This was more specialization in analytics. I was still in the tech, Got, got out of the school, got into a job with still in the still tech in my, with Microsoft in Seattle. Um, I started working there a few months into it and I lost my, I, I got into an accident and I lost my teeth. Um, I couldn't speak for three months and this is kind of implants and there was nothing in it for a long time. And then this is when I realized okay, tech is really not for me. As much as I love the tech, tech, I don't really love the culture uh, I'm being part of. And so I wanted something different. And I started to explore what that difference looks like. Nonprofit consulting, I was fortunate came to my came to my radar. I started to, to work for different nonprofits, uh, I would say for five years, up until last year. And that's when I realized as much as I love the tech, as much as I love the nonprofit, which is good. I was slowly realizing what I need in my life. What I was missing was the data that I was working with it never showed anybody who talked like me or or looked like me and there will always be like 15 different tabs on excel spreadsheet with the first one being the most priority everybody getting attention the more you go towards the right it just changes and and that was even when an organization is whether or not they are in a campaign or not whether or not it's for major gifts or not or just it was something becoming like a trend and that bothered me so I moved into creating the master data so I got into tech because I was really passionate I would say about tech and people eventually I moved to a place where I could find out what is about that data let's figure that out like why is everybody so crazy about data but only in one single way so that's what I'm going through my work these days.
0: I mean, that's so incredible. It feels like you've just been refining. It's not like you've abandoned anything. All you've done is figure out how to be more direct with you know, what you are pursuing. What Can I ask what part of India? Uh, I love India, I miss it. Um, I haven't been back for a couple of years, but I really love India. So what part of India are you from?
2: Oh, okay, so this is fun. But when you say miss it, I want to know when did you, how did you, did you travel up to that country?
0: I did. Now, here's the thing I've done international travel before where I got to like go to neighborhoods, uh, especially neighborhoods of poverty where I was helping to plant teams like way back in my history. So I felt like I really got a good taste of, of those countries. And when people ask, you know, about India, um, I have a couple of friends there where I got to actually go and see their houses and homes. And to me, that's what really it means to be in a country. But mostly I saw India through five-star hotels and tourist spots, which I don't really consider seeing that much of India. So it really has been like a couple of really close friends that I, I've known um, and have visited their homes, that that to me. So that was in uh, Noida and that was in Kerala uh, in yeah. And then also um, a little bit of Sri Lanka, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously a different country, but still similar feel. And since it was in the same friend group, you know, feels similar.
2: Well, now you have one more friend from the country. So you, if you're ever planning to visit again, um, I grew up in, all I would say like, I grew up in 20 different cities of the country. I, when I was growing up, my dad used to move a lot, like every two years he used to move. I remember the first time when I was at his age where I could understand we are now moving again from school. I didn't speak to him for three days. I was so angry that I have to move to another place. I'm a kid who does, cannot make easily so many friends. I'm a shy kid. Why do you have to move me so much? And I think I was in grade fifth, fourth, third or fourth maybe, I don't know. And uh, that was something... But now when I look back, I am really grateful for that experience to happen, to move through different, 20 different cities as I was growing up, even though we, I didn't have a cell phone, I didn't have a, a separate phone to talk to my friends or have Facebook. But what it meant was I was dealing with different cultures that every city had, speaks a different, every state speaks a different language in India. They have their own different versions of the culture, the food is different, the dialect is different, um, the, the history of that state is different. And as I was moving through different places, it just made me realize, okay, maybe I, a part of me has always been an immigrant. I mean, you know, it's, mm. it's not about, I always struggle with the idea of what is in, in a geography that belongs, okay. that I can call my home. Everybody says, my home is this place. I don't know if I have one geography that I can call my home, but I can probably call a tree my home. That That made me feel really comfortable. I can call a wall my home that just really made me realize this is where I grew up, but what it looked like when I was growing up. So maybe I don't have one single entity to call my home, but I have multiple different things that I can call my home. So um, from in India, I would say maybe across the country, different cities and move through different cities and say,
0: that's amazing, and if I plan another trip or the next trip where I plan, I absolutely will be in touch about that because um, yeah, it'll be amazing.
1: Well, so Mina, I want to dig into something that you said a moment ago that I think is kind of a pivot point for what you're on about now, uh, and that is, you you actually said the data that I was working with didn't look like me, uh, and I think that given the experience that you had growing up you're obviously unbelievably attenuated to these kinds of things so what is your assessment of you know when we're talking about data the relationship between it and producing accountability accountability for our actions in the in in the tech industry and and ultimately creating genuine impact in the world not just sort of impact marketing which is another term i'm going to start using
2: that's a that's a good question tracy and i'm, I'm going to bring a little bit of my personal life like lived experience into it before and i am going to also share as my screen to show a slide i often use in my workshops um so the way i look at data now is And I often try to compare my experiences from India, from the Eastern world with here, with North America. And India has its own issues of diversity and equity and inclusion. It doesn't look exactly the same kind what North America is facing with racial diversity because we we don't have that kind of a diversity problem. But we do have various lenses into it. And I often try to look back into my own life. Okay, what, what points from my lived experience do I see that the data was not actually used for good, but actually weaponized? And I am realizing there have been a lot of instances as I was growing up where um, I grew up in cities that were, that had domestic insurgency or, you know, there, there mm-hmm. were... Times when there were these 93 blasts in Mumbai, or there were times when big political changes were happening because of that led to riots. And a lot of it, I grew up in those cities. I grew up in those areas where, where things were really turbulent. And the way those those reports that came out of it, and I and I actually went back a couple of months ago to see, okay, what was being reported. And there were so many things that that, that were reported that just gave half picture and i wanted to just look at the word data itself not from any industry's point of view like is it, is it philanthropy or tech or journalism or i just wanted to see what that data showed was it actually connecting to the people whom i knew who were impacted my school bus used to go from those areas that for the people who were impacted so i could see there was a disconnect and it really um hurt my brain, it hurt my brain as someone who really loves data to see, oh, it can be weaponized in a way to, to simply remove, erase people from the story. Now that story that exists for 10 years ago, and people make videos on that, they're probably gonna see that half that story. Not somebody would come up and say, Oh, my school bus used to go from that area. I know there were five more families. I don't see that in that report. That was first indicator in my life to see, okay, there is a disconnect between the word data and accountability. We don't use it for accountability. The second the second time, and which is more tangi- tangible and I'm gonna share my screen, is when I, through, after George Floyd said, there was this racial justice awakening, I would say almost. And about a month, about not a month ago, about like three or four months ago, someone in one of my community conversations said, Nina, I am at a place where I love these things that you are doing and producing and I want to use it, but the leadership I work with, they are not there yet. I think I'm going to probably see the steam losing on this DEI conversation. I don't know how to keep that alive. And that sort of, and I want to share my screen here, led me to create this this sort of flow chart, not flow chart, but I would say this pipeline on, how does that look like? Because this data and accountability relationship. So, I wanted to use this example with this amazing person who said he doesn't feel the power to connect data with accountability, and I wanted to show it and share it with him. So, data often leads to analysis, and I often I take an example. Say so you want to um, look at the first generation immigrants in your city, and the city's looking at the data. They will probably do some analysis. They will create some charts, some visuals that will lead to knowledge that, okay, this number of first-generation immigrants, they are not matched with correct number of opportunities or relevant opportunities for their education. Giving an example how we are up to the knowledge phase that takes the city decides, it makes it some decisions that, okay, we need to create some policies on how we can better serve the first-generation immigrants who are coming from different countries with different access barriers. That leads to some actions on cities' part. And then they decide, okay, now we need to, to do this. We have a policy. Let's keep it into an action. That creates an impact. Probably not every family or every individual who's coming from a different country is going to be matched with the relevant opportunity. But something shows up, you know, something the gap starts covering up. And that creates an accountability. So if the city promised, okay, we are going to be helping 15,000 families in acclimating the, the city by the next in the next three years, that's a data point. That's not just a data point. That's a data point that can all the way, gives me the power to go back and ask the city, where are you now? What is the gap that that led you to not serving 15,000 families as you promised. So there is a very real connection between data and accountability. And every time someone says, I feel like the steam is losing between this DEI conversation, especially in arts, uh, um, human services and arts and culture organizations, I say, pull up all the data you can and start asking questions because there is a very real connection between data and accountability and you are not alone in feeling that. So I would say that was a very long answer of saying that there is a relationship between data and accountability.
1: Well, so my follow-up on this, Mina, is actually, it's a little bit cynical, but what is the relationship between data and truth? And the reason why I'm asking it this way is because, you know, sometimes the truth of the matter is, is we said we were going to do X and we don't give a damn. Like we literally don't give a damn for either reasons of power and privilege or structural blindness or, you know, whatever. So uh, some other sort of self-serving reason. So how does this process produce truth and, and what is that relationship given the subjectivity of truth, particularly in the modern era? You know,
2: I'm going to probably um, reverse to something I recently read and I, I think I have quoted it in one of my articles too. Data is never true. We often hear data is never perfect. Data is not necessarily 100% true every time. It's a rec- record made by someone else about something else. So a temperature, someone is, go- a temp- let's say, um, you found let's take an example you found a hip, hippopotamus running and you look at it and you want to record its speed that's you who is recording the speed if you saw that i i have fever and i have a temperature and you would give me a thermometer to um, measure my you know what's my temperature that's another device that's recording about the temperature that I am experiencing. There is always another entity that's recording about something that it's observing or seeing. And so data in itself always will have some element of inaccuracy. I'm not gonna say false, I'm gonna say inaccuracy because of the way it is collected and it is going to be handled and it is going to be measured. That being said, the way I use this framework is almost in a way to give power to that person who said, I feel powerless in feeling that the steam is going away. It's a very scary feeling to see all that this, let's say North America has accomplished in this racial justice or social justice awakening to see it go away and, and this rush to go back to something where we were four years ago or three years ago, because that means there would, again, be people who will feel lost, unheard, unseen, and that's not okay. And this framework allows me to share some relevant power to those people, say, hey, that data that everybody feels there is a claim for them on that data, you have something from that data too you can see that most often organizations and the leadership only goes up to the first four boxes, like from from data all the way up to decisions. And they want to keep tweaking and honing that, which is great. But what often it misses is you feeling powerless, But you do have if you go beyond those first four boxes, if you go all the way up to seeing the impact, all the way up to seeing and connecting the accountability with that data. So I would say the, element of truth or the element of, I would say, not truth, but maybe power comes from the fact that going beyond those four four boxes. Uh, I have got education, I'm privileged to have got education in different, three different universities and all always taught me to go from data to decisions. Nobody said that you also have the power, Mina, to go ask questions to those same organizations and institutions and, and people why haven't this been the case or why is this the case what is the gap and you can back that up with data use it for power use it for accountability i think that is the truth
0: but that's amazing and just because there are listeners that won't see the model that we're talking about here i want to just say what we are looking at and mina you offer a workshop on this right Um, Do you want to give a shameless plug because I want to see as many people in that workshop as can possibly get there. So where would they find this, this work to engage with you?
2: Absolutely. Thanks for offering me the chance to do this shameless blog. I would be happy to do that. Um, I have a school, virtual school called Data Is for Everyone. That's the name of the school. Um, it is available on you can search it on Google, you can search it on my website. I try, I am only use the LinkedIn. That's sort of my virtual home so you can find me there sitting on the window saying hi to you, waving to you with all my updated information on the profile. So it has the links um, to the workshop and I would welcome anyone who's interested. I'm often asked and I I, I kind of contemplate myself, who is the right person and I should be pitching this, this shameless plug about. And I think at this point, I believe it's about everybody. We all are constantly being collected. In the form of data through our mobile devices, through our through the internet, through our work, through in our personal life. So if we all claim to have some form, something to do with the data about us, through us, with us, then why not learn about data collection and visualization in a different way? And so anybody is welcome in these workshops. If- so if
0: you're curious about this conversation, this is for you. Like I love the name data is for everyone. And um, if, you're, if you're curious about it, then uh, it's absolutely for you. And could you pull that model back up for just one second? Um, Mina talked about four boxes. Um, and I just wanna talk, there are eight boxes on this model, sorry, seven boxes on this model. And uh, it's basically just a chain that goes data, then information, then knowledge, which by the way, is a central part of human stack work right there. And i love how you've taken it further than what we've done with that so knowledge then goes to decisions decisions go to actions actions go to impact and impact goes to accountability and so there's a there's a flow in this model and we will put a picture of this in the show notes Um, there's a flow in this model that goes from data all the way up to accountability and intersects the way that we look at data, the way we describe it, the way we act on it, the way we decide things on it. And um, I, what I love about this model is that I've done all of our work around how to access data for back-end systems. And I think that's really important. That's the focus of the human stack is how we help organizations drive their technology. What you've done though, is when you say accountability, you're talking about societal accountability bringing awareness and responsibility to past claims through the use of data i just think that is so powerful but there is a there's a fundamental assumption here that you've talked about before which is accuracy and i'm intentionally saying accuracy not truth although that is wildly interesting about the, com, you know, the conversation around philosophy of truth and accuracy. But what I can say is the more, the, the more accurate nonprofits can depict through data, their actions and impacts, the better that society can actually go to hold, uh, hold decision makers and impact makers accountable for the actions they have or have not taken. And I think it's a missing piece of this is that nonprofits, especially who are doing a lot of the social sector work and hold the keys to what's actually happening in impact, are struggling so much to just collect data for their own usage. It's just inconceivable that they would be collecting data that would go to the next step on creating societal accountability with that data. So, there, I I just want to say there is actually in some ways, a disincentive for decision makers to see that data actually get collected well. Uh, and, and that that is troubling and should be concerning to all of us because it just is harder to hold people accountable if you don't have accurate data to fall back on. Um,
1: well, so the other thing, and that's interesting, Tim. I, it's not where I thought you were going with this, but what I also think is super interesting is that this model is also assuming a motivational uh, backdrop. So, you know, I I take some of something in like this back to sort of Saul Alinsky 101, right? And what is the organizing model that is put behind this that creates community empowerment? So, I'm curious mm-hmm. in your work, you know. Well, how have you seen organizations move people to, to drive that very public accountability these days? And I think, you know, the kind of community organizing that I was trained to do, the kind that like Barack Obama was trained to do, you know, there's always some need for that. But I know that even that world itself has shifted. So What's the community empowerment mechanisms that you're seeing that are enabling organizations to actually do something with this model once they've assessed that accountability?
2: That's a really lovely question, Tracy, because I'm not asked usually a question like that on, my, on, on any of podcasts. And I would say, I like that question because oftentimes when I am sharing this model, are those people... Who struggle with their own position in the organization. We do talk in my workshops about, okay, for all the people that you are here, that I'm here, let's talk about what can we actually do? And and oftentimes that that conversation leads to, we can do a lot of things, but here is something, but there's something. And so but through the different examples, through the different conversations, what I'm realizing is this model becomes really successful when the leaders can be authentic. They are, be, they are willing to be vulnerable at times. I have had these conversations with leaders to say, how can I be vulnerable? I'm a leader. I have to show a face to my, my staff." Vulnerable doesn't mean you have to sit and cry. I mean, you are welcome to cry. There is nothing wrong with it. <laughs> I had a mean...
1: CEO who spent most of a year crying in front of <laughs> us all. It was not very productive.
2: <laughs> yeah, right? It, it, it just means that you can connect with someone on a human level. And if you can do that, you are probably empowering someone who never felt that she had a voice, and often some of these models that I use and some of these examples that I bring in the workshops, I often try to picture someone like me. I, I try to picture myself in these things. I moved six years ago, got into an accident. And when, when I got into an accident, I remember, and I, I've talked about this in one of my newsletters too, I remember um, the organization I was working with never paid for any of my surgeries and so I it became a legal battle I tried to find out okay who are the lawyers who can help help me out in this situation because you know I haven't earned enough I need to pay a ton of money for my surgeries and then the other side is this this um workers comp thing that you know I can apply for neither of those could actually pay but I became a number to both of them I became a category to the lawyers mm-hmm. MS1 EAD category to the other part, which was um, the workers comp thing, I became a case number. I became data points to two groups and neither gave me enough power individually or collectively to be able to do something about my minimizing bank funds to take care of my physical or mental health. And that is not a good place to be, especially the fact given the fact that every individual is trying to do their best in creating a societal impact. Every individual has that potential. So where is this missing motivation going? And I think that's where that intention comes with the data. Plug that intention and data together, that becomes the truth that can lead up to that accountability. And so a lot of things that I share often here is keeping that one persona in mind who may not feel enough power and feel enough vulnerable, but still can create a societal impact, which is oftentimes missing in the design cases we have for our products. For example, if you create a product, we are, when we think of the use cases and personas, what comes to mind is those able people with, you know, with, with middle household income, with stable income, a stable address, a phone number, you are reaching out to them to sell your product. It's often not the only case when it's true the population is can have multiple angles and i if it's okay with you i want to share with you i feel like i can share a lot of things from this page but i want to share something um where is it okay hold on this okay this is what i like to share a Data almost always looks like this group of people, right? It could be for the design of a product, it could be um, for design of a policy, but there are always a little some little subtle changes. And this is one example scenario. I'm looking at a group of people through their nationality, through their immigration um, status. And there could be someone who's a first generation Asian immigrant, cis woman, Indian descendant, visual disability immigrated 2015. There is another individual, first generation Asian immigrant, cis Indian descendant, immigrated in 1978. There is a difference between the first two. One person immigrated in 2015, six years ago, another one in 1978. There's a multi-generational difference and the access barriers are different. So there are different ways we can look at this data. And I think that is where we I kind of go back to my my model. But the I'm realizing I gave a very long answer so I'm gonna probably stop sharing my screen and give you both a chance That's
0: amazing i I appreciate so much how you humanize all of this um, and we'll put that graphic uh, on the on the show notes as well. I just think that it's so it's so hard in technology to get this down to a level where it feels like you're a- actually where it's personalized and it's human. Um, so I, I just love that you're doing that. Um, I'm deciding between two questions here that I've got. And I think I'm gonna go with, um, I'm gonna go with uh, part of my work, which has been thinking through you know, the tech stack and the human stack and thinking about how important that is. A parallel that I'm hearing in your work that I feel like I stumbled into just a, like a month ago, and it's been really impactful for the way I think about it, is that in the tech stack, it's a big calculator. It's all zeros and ones. It doesn't matter if you're having a bad day. It doesn't matter you know, what ethnicity you are. You code, and that code becomes part of a calculation. That calculation boils down to zeros and ones. On the tech stack, it is all true and false accuracy, you know, nested, if then statements, you know, a mile long that, that basically returns constant calculations of yes, no, but it's all binary to zeros and ones, true or false. Uh, And, and it's important. That's not bad. That's the way it works. That binary is actually fundamental to the code. And, um, and God help us if it ever like hit gray area and turned into a spectrum, right? Like that would just not work at all. On the human stack, I've thought that, okay, there's no binary, but I actually started to realize emotions really are binary. Things just boil down. Like I've spent so much time in therapy trying to get out of Black and white thinking and, you know, all yes or no thinking. And, and I think that our emotions have fundamentally just this divider of it's good or it's bad. And for humans on the human stack, I would say the binary is in or out. Do I belong or not to whatever group in whatever calculation you're trying to make that apply? So as I look at your as I look at that, uh, that graphic that you just pulled up, On the one hand, it's really important to know there's actually something really important about being able to count accurately, you know, how many of what things there are. That analysis and being able to do that is actually a societal important good thing to be able to just accurately count things. Independent of that, on the human stack, I would say that there are ways that that includes and ways that that discludes. And all of that gets mixed up into tech stack if we don't separate it out and say, there's two, at least two things going on here. And when you what you were feeling when you just became a case number, like it's important to have a case number like systems that don't have them are way worse. If you don't have a case number. Right. Like I've been in those systems where it's all organic or whatever. It is bad. Like that is not better. FedEx, but,
1: if you're listening, I'm still waiting for my $11.50 <laughs> back. So thanks. Speaking of systems and case numbers, there, there that's only go. been a right. month or two. You know.
0: And my point on that, though, is that you felt non-included in two different systems. Like you were out. And, and that symbolically came to mean you were out with the company that you were employed by. As well, and that I think is a missing piece that you're like I I hear it over and over in the way that you're talking about this, that we actually need to start seeing data that creates belonging and inclusion um, and and yet at the same time that we do have to have a tech stack that is calculating all of the zeros and ones on that. There's no question here. I'm just making a long observation and pretended it was a question. So, uh, well, I I
1: guess I'm curious what you think about that. Obviously, but I want to append something to that, Tim, because you're both picking at something that I think is super important. And uh, honestly, it took me until now to to see, Um, and that is, you know, I. I will be one of the first people who will raise my hand and say, yes, the work that we need to do in IT at all levels, but especially at the executive level, needs to be more inclusive. It needs to be more humanized. It needs to meet organizations and businesses and communities where it's at. I believe in all of that. Those are now values, not just sort of outcomes of processes that I know are derived from longitudinal study. Um, And frankly, personal experience as well, right? But I think the thing that connects both of your work structures together around this is the idea of esteem. Um, And, and, you know, what you're actually producing to some degree is better self-esteem for the individuals and for the businesses and for the communities that are utilizing tools and systems or trying to make a change in tools and systems. And, you know, I can only say from my own self-experience, like if I have high self-esteem and shitty technology, I'll just keep hammering on it until it works. But if I have low self-esteem and the best technology on earth, I'm not going to give a damn. I'm just not. So that's what I want to add as a caveat, Tim, is that what I'm seeing is the connection between both of your systems of work is a building of esteem around the things that are supposed to empower us.
2: Actually, I actually like that. I mean, and my mind is going, you are right. You said technos, low self-esteem and high self-esteem. The example that you gave, Tracy, is. Uh, I think this is where I am trying to bring that human-centric AI, one of the workshops that I'm trying to do, right, build right now is about human-centric AI workshop. And to connect both of your points, Tim and Tracy, we we really came from the world of zero and once, like from the 90s and 2000s, when computers became a ping, systems became a ping. And now we are with more and more algorithms and machine learning and AI around us, surrounding us, we are quickly getting back into those world of zeros and ones. We are trying to live in those world of zeros and ones, or rather rather we are already living in the world of zeros and ones, whether or not we want or not, we acknowledge or not, we understand or not, we are already living in zeros and ones in some algorithm, in some AI, in some application on our phones and desktops. And to that point of then esteem building with turning it the technology, I'm gonna say, you're saying esteem leads to, whether or not it's a good technology, your esteem impacts the technology. I'm thinking, what if the technology leads you to feel low or high self-esteem? What if that technology excludes you or includes you or makes you feel belonging in a place where it enables you enough to feel good about yourself, to feel that you have some power, you have some say, you are not unseen, you are not unheard, If you have, if you go through troubles, you have the help, you have the access needs taken care of. Technology has a lot of power. We are moving into that direction. AI is part of it. And it's time we start questioning how do we live in those worlds of zeros and ones?
0: I, man, I, I love that as a conclusion. I think that's really important. I'm going to say something and then we're going to dive into AI because I think that's so. Uh, that's something that you're talking about in a way others aren't so the one thing i want to say is that there's a lot of shame around not being able to use technology appropriately that's for another conversation that i can't wait to have with you mina let's talk about ai so i think you recognize the power of ai in a way that not that many guests have talked about can you can you just kind of start at the base level and say like, how do you view it? Uh, is it good? Is it bad? Is it gonna go Skynet and take over the world? And you know, like where, where is this headed in your opinion?
2: Well, I would say a couple of things have come to my mind. One is whether or not how we feel about it, we are moving towards AI. There are more and more applications that are constantly claiming that they can personalize things for you and enter something and I can predict things for you and I can suggest things for you. And I am realizing who has created some algorithms myself in my past work. I have worked with these data extensively. I'm I'm realizing that I am not a big fan of the way AI is handled. It's not a big surprise after someone who has heard for 45 minutes me talking about data. It's not a big surprise that I'm not a big fan, for example, Um, and I often talk about this is Netflix. It has the recommendation system. It gives, there's nothing against, I I don't have anything against Netflix. I love that platform and watching Bridgerton once again, right now. But I (laughs) (laughs) um, I never used to watch Korean dramas or Turkish dramas. I'm giving an example. I, don't, I speak a lot of languages, Indian languages, but I don't speak Korean or I don't speak Turkish. And I am watching those dramas on Netflix. It didn't come because of my recommendation systems. I was talking to somebody, I really got into those dramas, I searched for them, they started to come up, I started to like it. So there is an element of unknown in everything, the way we are dealing with the systems around us. If we don't keep that curiosity on to go explore something outside of what has been recommended to me, what has been personalized for me, I think we are limiting ourselves, I would never get to that Korean dramas which I'm absolutely a fan of now, and I have to create a separate profile for my partner, because he no longer wants me to mess up his recommendation but it's absolutely necessary for us to learn first to engage with a system with curiosity and intention before we jump to creating recommendation systems that's the problem of ai it wants I wouldn't say it's a problem of AI, it's a problem of those who can't talk about AI, who push that AI, because it's, AI is just a technology. You know, It's, it's me who is creating an algorithm for you. Now how I am presenting it to you and how I'm talking about it to you and how I'm making sure that you use that algorithm, there is a responsibility in how we use that AI in that case. And so this is what I'm trying to bring through AI. I don't wanna talk about what regression means and what support vector machine means and what logistic regression means. I wanna talk about what does it mean when you have an algorithm sitting in front of you and now what do you do with it? How do you make sure that you are asking the right questions to engage with that system before you start taking advantage of its claim saying it can make you very efficient, very fast, very optimal predict things for you which is great but i want to first learn how to engage with you before i can start learning what can you predict for me well i think the
1: point you're making is something that keeps me awake at night and that is you know if i hear what you're saying correctly you know my fear my personal fear is that what we call artificial intelligence is just nothing but rapid aggregated pattern matching. And I think, you know, the entire premise of this conversation is you can't do that because it dehumanizes the very people that you built the thing to serve in the first place. And the notion of curiosity is to me, the hallmark of what actually makes something intelligent. Um, Folks who've followed this podcast for a while know I've, I've written a book, and that's one of the premises of what happens in that book is that everything that we call artificial intelligence stops at one point or another and says, "What's next? I, I, need, more, I need more patterns to match, right? And what actually becomes, you know, in the book something greater than that is something that expresses its own intrinsic curiosity. Uh, and, you know, therefore the mechanism that needs to be built into all of these things is that curiosity mechanism. Because if you just do advanced pattern matching at scale, we already know the outcome. The outcome's January 6th, there you go. That was the outcome advanced pattern matching at scale, continued isolation of observers and ultimately zero curiosity about what was going on in the real world. So you know for folks who don't think that this is an issue this is actually the fundamental issue of what it means to be inclusive and that is retaining that curiosity. So
0: I am like frequently surprised at how far in advance you are correct Tracy. So like I will <laughs> I will say you're you're the person that I listen to if I want to know where we're going to be in 3 years. And you've already moved on. So when we hit the three-year mark, you're like into the next thing. And I've known you long enough to know that. (laughs) I also want to say... I don't like, I studied econometrics. So like, you know, when you're talking about log re- regressions, I love it. Like that's, that's amazing. in the mechanics of things like heteroskedasticity and all of that, it's just um, like- Can you just say that word
1: again? Heteroskedasticity. yep, it's, uh, it's where the- I, I give you my Bridgerton ground. It's where
0: there are patterns <laughs> in the errors. If you can't find patterns someplace else and you start looking at the errors to see if there are patterns, it's just amazing. Anyway, all that to say, I, I think one of the core issues that's not getting talked about and it would be so great to add Allison Taylor into this conversation is what what our what we're using it for. Is actually a core issue here, so yeah. it, it's not we true that it has important. to lead to January six. That same technology could lead us to start studying what creates more homelessness or less homelessness. What creates more human dignity rather than less? You know, um, how do we leapfrog all of the crazy philanthropy issues that we've created in the West and start seeing more direct impact? You know, funds to impact in in other you know, comments. So like all of that is interesting. I don't think AI has to lead down that dark path, um, but I do think that the values, what we are curious about, maybe is another way to say it. Like, what is it that our curious curiosity drives us towards? And is it when our curiosity is focused on accumulation of goods and resources for ourselves without consideration on what it does to everyone
1: else, that will lead to dark places, period. right. But isn't that so the corporate say, world? I mean, that's the whole reason why corporations are their own person. So that again, they can back to that motion at scale.
0: Yes, but that's not the only there, that's like there's still social social sector, there is government. And there needs to be a, a way to say, like, um, be, to your point, I used to really believe in impact investing. I don't anymore because of exactly that issue where I think actually corporations are out to maximize their own benefit. And they are not looking at what that does in terms of externalities, right? So absolutely 100%. But that's not the only entity. It's just the one entity that's making the best use of AI right so Ooh, love that's a that. little bit concerning that we are not so my concern in this conversation is instead of saying we shouldn't do ai what we should say is we need social sector and government to start beefing up how much they're using ai to ask better questions to find better patterns that to me is the conclusion here and that is what actually steers us like in, in different patterns Mina, we have now just completely derailed the entire conversation from you. I'm so sorry. I'm curious what you think about. it. You must think about this way more than we do. So like, we're going to spin this up. But where have you seen that? And what does that look like in multiple cultures?
2: No, I, I love how you both, um, the way it called called derailed and I'm air-coding it for our audience. I would say it did, did not derail at all. I love this. Um, it kind of, I have the same thoughts, similar thoughts around AI. I do think a lot about it. And I wouldn't say I think a lot about it, I would say I struggle a lot about it because how do I talk about it to these people, these people who, all these people who, we have limited time, limited attention span. And if a good messaging ad comes up saying for a product with AI, this can change everything in your life, use this, chances are it would be super popular posts, super popular product signups and whatnot. I'm struggling with the fact: How do I enable people to have better relationship with data, fundamental counting data, so they can have better relationship with AI? I when I created this title of the workshop, human centric AI. I'm 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 kind of so if you if you know if either of you have seen one of my posts on LinkedIn is I'm doing these four four polls right now. I'm on the second poll around AI. And the reason I'm doing this is I'm, I'm trying to figure out if people achieve human centricity in AI, let's say whatever that looks like, however that looks like, if they achieve that human centricity, would the fear go away on AI or AI? Would people feel comfortable with AI in a good way? And I don't think based on those polls and my conversations that human centricity is not a metric or a KPI. It's a it's an ongoing thing that we need to focus on, as it is with the case of building a good relationship with data. It's, it cannot be that I completed a degree program or I got a certificate, or I did I got a job as a title with so and so VP or a director or something, and then now I have a good relationship with data. It comes with conscious understanding and acknowledging that I don't know everything about data and, and I really want to talk about it. It's about people, somebody at this point is missing out on that data and I really want them to feel belonged in that data point. So if we get to some of those basics, keep our curiosity alive, I think we are doing a good job in embracing AI and challenging it when we need to. It's not once and for all thing.
0: Mina, Tracy and I are excellent at derailing conversations, but we haven't spent as much time around people that can rerail a conversation. So thank you, that is just amazing. And um, unfortunately we are so short on time. Uh, I feel like I could talk about this with you all day long and not even notice the day had passed. So uh, before this turns into eight hours, uh, I just wanna say thank you so much. We want to see people engaging you and learning from you have so much to offer. So um, we will put that in the, sh- we will put some of what you've talked about in the show notes. Can you talk about your consulting as well? Cause I know that you also do consulting and we talked about your workshops. What does it look like to engage you as a consultant?
2: Um, so consulting wise, I work with nonprofits in as an analytics advisory capacity. So helping them to set up their shop and, and analytics and Again, going back to like, how can I help them build better relationship with data? Call it anything and I'm not into titles. So just talking with them and making sure that they, sit with me to ask some questions around data. That's one aspect. The other aspect is helping in the fundraising um, campaigns and making sure that the kind of day-to-day predictive modeling and research and surveys, they go out with the sense of inclusion and equity grounded in those research tools. Um, That's kind of my consulting side of things. The other side is workshops, like like I talked about. And when I'm not paid for either of those Um, verticals I love to write and I have a newsletter called data uncollected which is on LinkedIn Um, and it's and I also post the same articles on my website just in case if somebody's not on LinkedIn they don't necessarily need to log on to that platform just to read those they can also read them on my website but that is like the whole umbrella of my work consulting to writing to workshopping
0: Thank you, Mina, so much for joining us today. Um, We're really excited about your work and we'll be following closely. I know I subscribe to your newsletter. I think it's great. I hope others do as well. Um, So um, find Mina on LinkedIn. Uh, You can check our show notes. Please follow and subscribe to the work of this amazing individual that is just doing so much um, around things that are near and dear to Tracy's in
1: my heart.
2: Thank you you so so much. Thank you, Mina,
1: so much. Thank
2: you.
1: This is Tracy Kronzak. And I'm Tim Lockie. And you've been listening to Why It Matters, an independent production that captures our passions, personalities, and purpose for technology as applied to the impact economy. All of
0: that's important, but even more important, we are here to have fun and introduce some of the people and ideas that keep us up at night and get us out of bed in the morning.
1: We are so grateful that you've been listening to us. We have no idea why you'd want to do that. Maybe you lost a bet. Maybe you're stuck in a car with someone else controlling the sound system, or maybe you are truly interested in what we have to say.
0: Whatever the reason, whether it's a bet or you're a believer, would you hit subscribe, or if you've already done that, would you mind leaving us a review? And if you're really brave or want to punish someone, please recommend this podcast to your friends, enemies, and family.
1: And all kidding aside, thanks for tuning in and we are so glad that you're here.